preserve. He's a rich industrialist. And I, and I guess to soothe his guilt, he uh, thought he'd give that to the town for fun and recreation. That was the idea, fun and recreation. Well, I remember as a kid going there in the summertime, uh, and uh, there were a couple of uh, resources there. One was a big swimming pool, and the other were fields upon fields and meadows and everything. And you would go to the swimming pool, and it would say, no jumping, no running, no diving. And then it'd say, Violators will be prosecuted. You know. So you'd say, okay, this is going to be fun. <laughs> and then we'd have a dip, you know, but we had to be very sedate about our swimming. Then we'd think we'd like to have a workout, so we'd go to the meadows, these beautiful, big, huge, well-groomed fields cut just right. And the big sign as you go in says, no ball playing. Well, where I grew up, ball playing was like a religion, you know, no ball playing, holy cow. And then it said, have fun, underneath. <laughs> I, I came to, to realize that maybe fun wasn't their goal, that something else was in order, because the way they were acting said to me that they weren't in favor of fun. They were in favor of something else. James's message to us today is along the same lines. Uh, so I ask you to turn to James chapter 3, verses 13 through 18, and we'll uh, study this passage. James chapter 3, verses 13 through 18. Who is wise and understanding among you? Let them show it by their good life, by deeds done in the humility that comes from wisdom. But if you harbor bitter envy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast about it or deny the truth. Such wisdom does not come down from heaven, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where you have envy and selfish ambition, there you find disorder and every evil practice. But the wisdom that comes from heaven is first of all pure, then peace-loving and considerate, submissive, full of mercy, good fruit, impartial and sincere. Peacemakers who sow in peace reap a harvest of righteousness. Let's pray. Let's have a prayer. Heavenly Father, so grateful to be here this morning and to be in your word. Lord, we thank you for your Holy Spirit uh, that is with us even now. So Father, we pray that you would minister to us in your word. Teach us your desire the things that are in your heart, Lord, so that we may please you and live according to your way. In Jesus' name, amen. James starts this little passage here with a challenge. He says, who is wise and understanding among you? He's asking the the recipients of uh, this letter, which were uh, early churches in and around Jerusalem. And as time went on, the letter was further circulated and got quite uh, a, a wide circulation in the end down to this very day where we are reading it here in Lanesville, Massachusetts. Who is wise and understanding among you? And you can just imagine, when he asks that question, the hands go up, you know, and everybody probably in church, they're, you know, it's like the expected answer. Oh, me, me, me. Then he says, show it by your good life. James is great, you know, he, he, he challenges us uh, and, and he pulls out of us uh, admissions and, uh, and statements and, uh, and conditions, etc. And then he 
And then he says, okay, if that's the case, show me, show me how you are wise and understanding. And he says, show it by your good life, by deeds done in the humility that comes from wisdom. Two things in this little passage here. Wisdom is supposed to produce good works. Now there's, a, there's a, like a theological book in that little phrase. Wisdom in the Old Testament is the beginning of understanding, right? Wisdom leads us to an understanding that, that, that God is who he is. And everything else follows from that. If we understand who God is, then we understand who we are. If we understand who we are, then we understand that God has an expectation for us. And the Old Testament is just full of sayings and situations and stories, etc., that describe this and exercise this and examine this over and over and over again. Wisdom is the beginning of understanding. If you are wise, then you will understand who God is. And if that's the case, then you will be humble. You will be meek, all right? Because you understand who God is, you understand who you are, how you fit in, that you're not the main power in the cosmos, that God is, and he has a desire for you. Right? So that will lead you to an understanding of how you should comport yourself, not with abandon, with arrogance, with all that, but with an understanding that God has an expectation. You have a purpose in creation. And one would think that wisdom then would lead you to find out where that is, what that is, etc. So wisdom produces good works. Wisdom is characterized in meekness or humility. It's, it's a quality of not being overly impressed by a, a sense of one's self-importance. Uh, that's a dictionary um, uh, definition. It can also be uh, gentleness, humility, courtesy, considerateness, and meekness. So this true wisdom gives way to these things. It's, it's like real faith. It's vital. It's practical. There's a quality that has much to do with the way we live as what we think or say. In this, James is true to the Old Testament conception of wisdom as a way of life, the attitude and conduct typical of a godly person. Jesus himself was, weak, was meek, Matthew eleven twenty nine, and he pronounces blessing or approval. He gives his approval to those who are meek, Matthew 5, 5, in the Beatitudes. Christian meekness involves a healthy understanding of our own unworthiness before God and a corresponding humility and lack of hubris in our dealings with our fellow men. So understanding that, you know, understanding that James is a Jewish person and he's, he is teaching in concepts that are Jewish, they're scriptural from the Old Testament. So those schooled with that understanding then will understand that, that uh, James is talking about things that they know about, right? So if you say you are wise, we want to see the fruit of, of that, that characterization, that quality in your life. And he asks, basically, how do you measure up? Do you have good works? Do you have understanding? Are you meek? Are you humble? Are you courteous? Are you kind? Sounds like a Boy Scout. 
But these are important concepts. These are important realities for people who say that they are wise. Because evidently in the church, lots of people say they're wise, and yet the church does not often comport itself in wise ways. And that was the issue in James's day, and still often is the, the issue today. The opposite of wisdom, of meekness, of understanding, is bitterness and jealousy and selfish ambition. So if you say you're wise and you have those things as, as how you are seen or how you comport yourself, then the argument is you're not being wise or you're, you, the kind of wisdom that you exhibit is not the godly kind of wisdom, the one that scripture talks about, the one that we are urged uh, to be characterized by. James warns against this. In no uncertain terms, he says, Christians who claim godly wisdom should have zeal for the Lord, but not a selfishly motivated, harsh, and violent fanaticism. Now, if you keep track of the news, as I know some of you do, I like to read the newspaper in the morning, a couple of newspapers, and, and get all the, all the, the straight uh, information uh, out of the media. And so I can have an understanding of how things are going on. And I hear that both parties are after the well-being of the population. <laughs> I was comforted by that. <laughs> I was. And, and, and both, both uh, um, parties and the bureaucracy at large is out for our best interests and well-being. And they want peace and understanding to rule in, in all of our intercourse, whatever kind it is, they're calling us to be respectful of one another and to, and to be adult and to be calm and patient, etc. And I, I say, man, oh, man, this is great stuff. It's like they've been reading the Bible, right? And then I saw the film of a day in Congress of people being called names and accused of all kinds of heinous things. You know, and here I thought that the Nazis were all dead and gone and after World War II, but evidently they're all over the place. And I was, I was horrified to find out that I myself am a Nazi. Yeah. Or worse, yeah. I'm, I must be the most horrible person in the world. It's what I can figure. And I'm associated with the most horrible people in the world. Evidently, the Congress is so tied up with converting the entire nation from what we are, horrible, stinking people, into the model of wonderfulness that they are, that they are frustrated, evidently. They try and try, but still, it seems like the only thing that they are sowing is bitterness, and envy, and impatience, and hatred. I wonder where they're going wrong. James says, if you are wise, you will have gentleness and meekness, and there will be understanding in the way you comport yourself. And the fruit of that will be righteousness and peace. Man, we're going down the wrong road, I think. 
Zeal is sometimes selfishly motivated. It involves envy and criticism of others. It's coupled with selfish ambition and results in the narrow partisan zeal of factional, greedy politicians. I hate to say it, but it seems like that's what we got. Some of the recipients of James' letter who pride themselves on their wisdom and understanding are displaying jealousy, bitter partisanship. It is the antithesis of meekness or humility produced by true wisdom. What's happening in the world ought not to be happening in the church. That's James's point. We should act differently. We should be differently. Where we are, there should be blessing. Where we are, there at least should be peace modeled, right? We may still seek after it, but we should at least be modeling it in the way we treat each other. It's because this behavior bespeaks the root of their motivation, you see? If, if what we're seeing is bitterness and factionalism and fanatic politics going on, we gotta say, what's the motivation? What are they trying to accomplish? Are they trying to accomplish peace and understanding? I think they're going about it the wrong way because that's not what they're getting. They're getting craziness. They're getting rebelliousness. They are stirring up the pot of sedition. It's not the right way to go, I don't think. And James says if you are behaving that way, don't lie and say you're wise. Don't say that you're for peace. Because if you do, you are misrepresenting what wisdom is all about. I remember some years ago, when I was a young man, I went to a, a peace rally down in Boston, right? And I was there with a friend of mine. I had just gotten out of the Navy myself. I had lots of friends that were still in NAM, And so we were there to try to to speak truth to power, right? And, and I remember, a guy came up to me and he says, you got enough rocks? I said, rocks? What are rocks for at a peace conference, at a peace rally? He says, oh, you gotta have rocks. So I said, no thank you. And by, the, by about 10 minutes into the peace rally, the rocks were being thrown at the police who were there to keep order, you know? I mean, it was crazy. Here these guys are there, probably they're working overtime, their families are at home waiting for them to come back from their duty, right? And, and many of them were service members, right? And so they're there to protect the people who are there in the park and they're trying to keep order. And the, and the peace people are throwing rocks at them, right? And before you know it, the, the people who are charged with protecting are sending in cavalry you know, guys on horses with big long nightsticks. And I remember at one point running for my life, literally, because these guys were thundering down on the crowd on their horses with their nightsticks. After that, I didn't go to any more peace rallies because it seemed to me like they weren't after peace, they were after something else because the fruit of all of that wasn't peace. It was turmoil, 
It was chaos. It was hatred and aggression. And it was foul. If you say you are wise and you exhibit those kinds of things, you're telling a lie. And you really shouldn't boast about it. To boast about wisdom when one is displaying jealousy and selfish ambition is, in effect, to give lie to the truth that wisdom must be associated with humility. So James tries to help us out by contrasting these two positions. He says there's a difference between ungodly wisdom and godly wisdom. In ungodly wisdom, there resides jealousy and selfish ambition. The result of that is disorder and every vile practice. I love James because he doesn't pull the punches. You know, he tells it like it is. If he feels strongly about something, we get the point, right? So he says this brand of wisdom that's being peddled in the world results in disorder and every vile practice. And if that's the case, then that ain't wisdom. The reason for this is that the wisdom that gives birth to, the, birth to this stuff is earthly, unspiritual, and he says demonic. That means that it has an origin in evil, in the evil one and his minions who urge that, who stir that, who love to see that. You know, the, the evil one and his minions are not on our side. They want to see humanity destroyed. They want to see humanity remain in rebellion to God. They want to see God humiliated by the actions of, his, of the apple of his eye, his creation. So that's what they're out for. They're out to destroy us and humiliate God. So they're not going to, they're not going to uh, be on the side of, of humility and understanding. They're going to revile that, and wherever they can, they're going to try to destroy it and lead in another direction. And it's easy to do in human beings. We tend to be jealous people. We're jealous of our spouses. We're jealous of our property. We're jealous of our cars or our, our jobs, etc. And we defend ourselves with eagerness and, and immediacy, etc. And we take exception at almost everything even misunderstandings, even colloquialisms. I mean, it goes on and on. Human beings without the effect of the Holy Spirit in their lives tend to be warlike creatures. And you only need to go back and look in archeology. span As far back as they can go, pretty much, they find evidence of war and murder, etc., etc. So, James says you shouldn't be surprised that all of this stuff comes from a demonic source. It's earthly and unspiritual. And when you have that, the result is disorder in every vile practice because you start out with jealousy and selfish ambition. It can go nowhere else but down. How can you tell? Look at the fruit, right? Are we the wonderful, high-minded uh, human beings that uh, often human humanitarianism talks about? I don't think so. It seems to me like wherever there are humans, there is war and misunderstanding, et cetera, et cetera.
we bring it on ourselves. On the other hand, we have godly wisdom. Where there is true godly wisdom, James says, peace is planted by peacemakers. So these people who make peace are planting it so that it will grow in a harvest of peace. So the things that they are doing are associated with, with, with causing peace to grow and multiply and fill the earth. Well, that sh- should sound familiar. Grow and multiply and fill the earth. Isn't that what humanity was supposed to do before the fall? Guard the garden, subdue the earth, no longer a wild thing, but a cultivated thing. No longer a, a, a chaotic bramble, but now a garden fit for God to live with his people. That's what we were supposed to do. But we got sidetracked and we went our own way. Godly wisdom is peace being planted by peacemakers. And as a result, there is a harvest of righteousness. Righteousness is associated with the character of God. Everything that God does is good and perfect and awesome. And as God's people, we are called to emulate that, to be like that, to be like our dad. Just like a little kid who wants to be tall and strong and and kind to his mother. So children, seeing that model before them, want to be that way as well. Same thing for moms. It's the modeling of that perfect, perfect mom that makes kids want to be a mom and to want to be like their mom. Where there is true godly wisdom, peace is planted by peacemakers, and as a result there is a harvest of righteousness because true godly wisdom, wisdom is first pure. See, God's wisdom is pure, it's perfect. It's moral blamelessness. It's an unsullied chastity of a virgin bride, free from stain and blemish. You know, when Jesus died on the cross and paid for our sins, he prepared his bride, the church, to come before the Father pure and unblemished, right? To return us to that place of perfection from which we fell, to make us pure and holy. So wisdom is, first of all, this, it's pure and holy. Then it is peaceable. That is to say, it produces peace. Proverbs 3.17 says, wisdom is peace. It brings about peace. It's also the fruit of the Spirit from Galatians 5.22 and 23. So once again, you know, the opposite of, of earthly and demonic, you know, this wisdom is heavenly. It comes from God. It proceeds from God's Holy Spirit, from his wisdom. It's pure and holy, it is peaceable, it is gentle. It means to be kind, to be willing, to yield, to be unwilling to exact strict claims. With such an attitude, the believer is motivated and empowered by wisdom to follow in the footsteps of our Lord Jesus, who is also characterized by meekness and gentleness. That's what we want. When you are filled with the wisdom of heaven, it it, it causes you to to change inwardly, I think. All the things, the little things that used to matter and were a big deal no longer matter. 
Once the realization is made that you are a child of the living God, that you have been reconciled to him, and your eternity is made sure in Christ the Lord, that you have built up and enabled to be, be the person that God has called you to be, intimately attached to the purposes that God has called you to. When, when that's all set, when that future, when your goals, when all your hopes are realized in Christ the Lord, Everything else, all the little things that bother us and eat away at us and cause us such difficulties just fade into the background. And the things of this world will go strangely dim. That's what the hymn says, right? Strangely dim. They just don't matter anymore. You know, now that I'm, now that I'm older, you know, I used to uh, perseverate. My wife helps me with the, the, that big word. Help me used to worry and worry and worry and have anxiety over things. Well, it used to be me. I worried about everything. I, I would get to the point where I couldn't sleep for days on end because I was worried about stuff. And then I came to know Christ. And now I don't worry about them. It's, it's like old age. You know, I was upset about something this morning, but then I forgot what it was. And when that happened, it <laughs> went away. It's great. God takes that away. Because our security, our identity is in him, right? Our identity is in him. So all that ambition, all that drive, all that stuff just changes. It's no longer focused on, on self. Now it's focused on God's desire, who has already given us a status that is, it is higher than any other status that we could possibly attain on planet Earth. We are his and his forever. Because we are pure and peaceable and gentle, we are open to reason. You know, a good argument's a good argument. You know, I sometimes sit in meetings in the church and we're trying to get to a goal, right? And so there's all these ideas, you know? And I have ideas and I think, I think well, my idea is a good idea. But after I listen to the other ideas, I say, well, that idea is actually better than my idea. Let's go with that. Now, now, a person with worldly wisdom says, well, what about my ego? My ego is unsatisfied because the idea that should be uh, taken up is my idea because it's mine. And what's mine is mine. And if everyone realized that mine is mine, then everything will be good. But they don't. And that makes me mad. And so it goes. And pretty soon you're perseverating. And you don't sleep, which makes you freaky. And it goes on and on. So we are open to reason. It's literally one who is easily persuaded. Now this doesn't mean wishy-washy or gullible, but it's a person who understands the difference between a good idea and a bad idea, who, who can actually recognize the excellent qualities of someone else's idea and replace it uh, in his own way of thinking. So it's someone who doesn't have ego attached to all that process who is willing to see the good in others and good ideas, etc. It's, it's a sense of a willingness and deference to others when unalterable theological or more uh, moral principles are not involved. So the rest of it we can figure out as we go along. We're open to reason. We're full of mercy and good fruits. It is that love for neighbor that shows itself in action. It's not surprising that James couples mercy so closely with good gifts. Acts of mercy are those fruits which genuine wisdom, like genuine faith, must produce. 
so full of mercy and good fruits, and impartial and sincere, not exhibiting prejudice. It's a genuine show of concern for people without pretense. Now, these days you get a lot of virtue signaling. You know, I get so sick of that, I tell you. You know, like every time I do something good, I'm gonna call the newspaper and make sure it gets in there. Or, or, or if I disagree with something, I'm going to make sure that the, the, the press is there to hear my opinion on something. Virtue signaling. And if you look closely, you'll find sometimes there are horrendous conflicts in people who do this stuff. You know? Get, don't want to go off track here, but... Uh, it's, it's insincere. It's not genuine, and it uh, exhibits prejudice. Anyhow, so wisdom is a quality that motivates certain kinds of behavior. Uh, and so godly wisdom will, uh, will cause good behavior, good works, holiness, etc. Uh, earthly wisdom will result in uh, selfish ambition and, uh, and the opposite of peace. You can tell by the fruit, once again. You know, in construction, uh, you go about things in a certain way. Say you want to build a house. Well, you, you don't just go out with a shovel and start digging a hole. You got to make a plan. And the plan is usually, uh, it, it's, a, it's, a, uh, it's a, uh, uh, a drawing of what you want the house to be. Number of rooms, the size, the color, the shape, uh, all of that stuff. You decide that uh, on a piece of paper. And where you see conflicts, you make little changes until you get to the point where this drawing is an, is an identification of your perfect house. It's the goal that you are setting to attain. Once you have that, the next thing in the process is not to go out and dig a hole in the ground. It's to decide what do I need to attain my goal, right? You must count the cost. So you do a, a materials list according to the plan. You get that all there. You, you contact a, a, a dirt mover and you try to find out how much it's gonna to cost to dig the hole and prepare the site. You're gonna call a foundation guy and get a price for the foundation. Then you're gonna to talk to a carpenter, a construction company to build the house. You want a painter to come and paint it, sheetrock guys to go in and do the sheetrock, plumber, electrician, all these things. It's counting the cost. You understand that. And then you compare what all those needs are to what you have. And if you say, I don't have enough money, I don't have enough understanding, etc., you go out and you get that stuff. And then you apply it to the process. And once that's finished, then you can proceed in the project. And usually it goes pretty smoothly. At the end of six months or so, there's your house. It's a realization of that dream. It's a simple task. You figure out where you wanna be. You, you ask yourself, what do I have to attain that goal? Once you have that understanding, you just fill in the middle. For a life that is wise, without selfish ambition and bitterness and all that stuff, you're gonna ask yourself, where do I wanna be? I wanna be like Jesus. 
Okay, what do I got right now to attain that goal? Well, I look at my life and I say, hello God, I got nothing. I need help from you to give me the things that I need to become like Jesus. James says at the very beginning of this little, le- little letter, if you, a- if you lack wisdom, ask for it. And the God who is, gives all good gifts will give you what you need. All right? So I don't have what I need, but I know someone who does have what I need. So I'm going to ask him. And when I get that, it's just a matter of filling in the gap in between. James says, in order to do that, you need to be meek and you need to have the right kind of wisdom. And then you can go forward to fulfill that goal of being like Jesus. Ask for it, James says. James is saying, you want to be a disciple of Jesus Christ? Okay, that's your goal. So where do you start? What do you have? Count the cost. Now, the traditional way of reading the passage about counting the cost says, you know, you got to make a decision whether or not you even want to take this on, right? I don't think that's it. I think the idea is you want this. You want to be saved. You want your sins forgiven. You want to live with God forever in heaven. You want to enjoy his presence in a profoundly sublime, glorious way like you've never been able to do before. And you want to do that through Christ Jesus, right? That's your goal. That's where you want to be. What do I got right now? I got nothing. I know where to get it, though. I'm going to ask God, and he's going to give it to me because he said he would. So I receive. I count the cost. I tally it. I put together a plan. I ask for what I need from God, and he gives it to me, and then we can proceed to realize the goal. If you lack the means and the material and the motivation, ask. James 1.5, if any one of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. Who is wise among you? Who? I am. I know where to go to get what I need. Right? And that's where it all starts, right there. Who is wise among you? Show me. Let's pray. King of glory, divine majesty, every perfection adorns thy nature and sustains thy throne. The heavens and earth are thine. The world is thine and its fullness. Thy power created the universe from nothing. Thy wisdom has managed all its multiple concerns presiding over nations and families and individuals. Thy goodness is boundless. All creatures wait on thee and are supplied by thee, are satisfied in thee. How precious are the thoughts of thy mercy and grace. How excellent the loving kindness that draws men to thee. Teach us to place our happiness in thee. The blessed God, never seeking life among the dead things of earth or asking for that which satisfies the deluded. But may we prize the light of thy smile, implore the joy of thy salvation, and find our heaven in thee. Hast thou attended to, thou hast attended to our happiness more than we can do. 
Though we are fallen creatures, thou hast not neglected us. In love and pity, thou hast provided us a savior. Apply his redemption to our hearts by justifying our persons and sanctifying our natures. We confess our transgressions, have mercy upon us. We are weary, weary, give us rest. We are ignorant, make us wise unto salvation. Helpless, let thy strength be made perfect in our weakness. Poor and needy, bless us with Christ's unsearchable riches. Perplexed and tempted, let us travel on unchecked and undismayed, knowing that thou hast said, I will never leave thee nor forsake thee. Blessed be thy name, in Christ our Lord. Amen. Brothers and sisters, I invite you to continue in worship uh, this morning by singing together hymn number 335, Gracious Spirit Dwell With Me, standing as we sing. Beverly Johnson to come forward and share a missions moment with us this morning. Sister Beverly. Good morning. So lovely to see you all today. Um, normally we have 